Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. Today I'm going to interview... Kirsty Last. Now, do I call you Kirsty Last or Kirsty Swan? Oh, it's got to be Last now, hasn't it? Kirsty Last. So, <laughs> Kirsty Last is a former police officer. And having left the police service, she set up her own company. But before we get into the uh, work that she's carrying out now, which is absolutely brilliant, um, Kirsty, welcome to X Job Downloaded. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been a while since we've, we've spoken, and I know a lot of things have happened. But um, Let's start at the very beginning, because that's always a good place to start, as they say in that famous song. Where, where were you born? What? So I was originally born in Kent, in Maidstone. Were you? Yeah, I was. A Kent lash, lash lass, even. Yeah. Um, and I moved to Hampshire when I was about seven. So I really, my memories, most of my memories are from Hampshire. Okay, so you go through normal secondary schooling. Yeah, yeah. I, t- I take it you didn't go to... You know, no, no. Grammar or convent, no, my or academic like levels <laughs> not not best, <laughs> shall we say. Um, so no, normal high school, um, senior school, and I came away with CSEs as they were all those years ago. <laughs> yeah, and we had black slates and pieces of chalk as well. Then. Absolutely, yes. So you've left school. What year did you join the police service? Uh, 96. 96. So you'd done jobs before you joined yeah, the police? Yeah, I, for 10 years, I was employed in, um, I did a, back then they had YTS, the youth training oh, yeah, scheme. Yeah, yeah. So I left school. My mum influenced me to join IBM because back then in the 80s, IBM was a massive employer. Yeah. And if you had that on your CV, you could pretty much go anywhere. So I did a two year YTS um, with IBM and got into payroll and cashiering like finance oh, okay. so did that and I basically progressed up um, and at the age of 24 I became a payroll and cashier manager for Portsmouth Printing and Publishing which was um, what's well, Portsmouth News it was a publishing company right. down in Portsmouth and um, yeah I had four or five people work for me and I was responsible for every penny that came through that company came through my office. Wow. And I paid all the employees. I paid the tax office, the pensions. So I was the payroll and cashier manager. So what inspired you to join the police service? What was the, the thing that made you want to join? If I'm honest, boredom. I was bored in my job doing right. the same thing day in, day out. And literally the same, you know, weekly payroll, monthly payroll, paying the tax man. And it... I, it just didn't challenge me. I didn't feel it challenged me. And I just thought, you know what, I need a job that's got variety, diversity and, and more challenging, really. And um, so I thought, I'll give it a go. And that was Hampshire Police? That's Hampshire Police, Because yeah. Hampshire Police are a very large uh, non-metropolitan police service. Yes, yeah. They've got some big towns and, and what yeah, have you. Cities, Sa- yeah. Cities, Southampton, Portsmouth and so yeah. on. Yeah, they've got obviously massive service area, both Army and Navy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, they've got a lot of policing, big football town, yeah, cities as yeah. well, the football clubs, all that kind of stuff. And where did you start? What, what town I did you start? I started in Southampton. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Portswood was my first posting, which is just outside the city centre. Um, but... 
Um, yeah, so I, I started there in 1996. How many people did you have on the shift at that time when you went there? Oh, at the shift, there was probably, I would say, a sergeant plus six or seven. Okay. Yeah, easily. And then all the towns would interlink, I suppose, and every town had a had a similar size shift. Yeah, yeah. I bet it's not like that now. No, no, it wasn't like that when I when I left and moved to another force. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's depleted, definitely. So what did your career look like within Hampshire's police service? So in Hampshire, I started in uniform, as we all do, probation, and you work your way, get through, um, signed up independent, and then finish your probation. And I uh, stayed in uniform um, to learn how to be a bobby. You know, a lot of, I think, forces now, they allow the officers to, you know, go to CID or specialist units so quickly and they actually haven't learned how to communicate with the public, how to police, how to just be a bobby, Yeah, you know, as we would recognise it. Um, and then after about four years, I went to like proactive unit um, and town centre unit. So you're dealing, targeting more, a little bit more serious crime. So sort of fraudsters, things like that, um, drug dealers, um, so you were sort of more specialised than just your general policing. Okay. I, I mean, it's interesting because I, I, I went down a similar route. So listening to the comparisons, you know, it's interesting. So you're on a proactive team. Yeah. Were you selected for CID whilst you were on there or how did that happen? Yeah, it, that, it, the, the, the mention of CID came up quite early. I did in my probation um, I was actually signed off quite early doing my files because normally your sergeant or your tutor would have to sign them off. But the um, admin department, the file, I can't remember the justice unit that used to do our files for us, said, actually, Kirsty's files are really good, so she doesn't really need them signed off now. She can do them independently. So I, I, I just had that, I suppose, they recognised that... I was quite good at the investigations. I was getting things done. Um, and they sort of mentioned CID path quite early on, really. But you'd already come from a, a senior role. So, you, I mean, I don't mean to be this disparaging around some of our former colleagues, but you weren't a kid. No, no. no you, was... you knew your way around um, quality and what evidence should look like. So, and, you know, working, working, doing payroll and things like that, it's all about that forensic viewing, yeah. making sure that you get it right and right on the first yeah. occasion. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Where did you go to when you first went on CID? Where did you go to? So initially, I didn't go straight on CID. There was Serious and Organised Crime Unit were advertising for, because they at that time they had PCs and DCs. Okay. So a PC post came up, so I was encouraged to go for it, because I was also, at that time, a qualified undercover decoy, decoy officer within okay. Hampshire. So I'd done quite a few years on on units, you know, specialised. And what does that practice. mean then? So let's let's go back a step. What does it mean to be a decoy officer? Let's explain that one away to the listeners. So there's um, different levels of undercover officers, um, and back then um, it was you had your level ones, which were your decoy officers. Level two, which were like your test purchasers, so they would go out and buy, yeah, um, or sort of infiltrate the community a little bit more, and then you'd have your full full-time undercover officers that would live in the community. So I was the first level. So I would go out, things, an example, if they were getting a lot of robberies um, in the area and there was specific or they got specific intelligence, then I would either go out, dress up, 
similar to what the target yep. victims have been to see if I I'm a decoy basically. So they come and rob me, and then they get nicked. So you you'd be under surveillance by yes. by another team yep. or part of the team. They'll be watching you. Yeah, and you'll be walking up and down, and it could be anything from street robberies to sexual assaults, assaults. and all, yeah, and that type. Yeah, of thing. and even back then when they used to have vice, I would do um, the streets walk the streets for vice. Right. Okay. Um, to obviously try and prevent curb crawlers or identify curb crawlers. Um, Which I would imagine is quite prolific in some parts of the docks area. In Southampton, massive, massive. When I joined Southampton, that it, it was known, a specific area of Southampton was known as the red light area. Right, okay. And, um, did it have a more colloquial term? What, what did they call it, Kirsty? You can say no, it. No, it was, they, it was the ICA was what they used to call it, but it was, you know, it was well known outside of Southampton as the red light area. Right, okay, you're so, but- so polite. <laughs> <laughs> did you enjoy doing the decoy work? Loved it. I loved it because it was something different um, and it really got the heart racing. Um, There was one job I did, which was a robbery. Um, They'd got some specific intelligence and and they said, you know, uh, we believe this person's going to be. So I had the person's car. It was all really, really good the way it was set up. And as I drove to the location, I drove past the suspects. Wow. So I was like, this is going ahead. This is actually How going are you to happen. At that point, your heart's racing. It's weird. It's scary, but it's like, come on, I've got this. We, you know, we need to get these tow rags off the streets yeah. from robbing people. And so, yeah, it's it's like frightening but thrilling as well. But you know that your your support team are there, and nothing is going to happen. It's like watching I'm a Celebrity. No one's going to let you die. No. Well, no. I'm a Celebrity. No one's going to let you die. No. But you cannot. Um, judge what a suspect is going to do at the time of if they get arrested or if there's a strike that goes in you you can't determine what how they're going to behave so that must affect your demeanor whilst you're out there working yeah because you have to you know because obviously you know you've got that natural instinct but as a police officer when you see things that aren't wrong you want you want to strike but as a decoy officer, you can't. You've just got to go with the flow um, be, and and trust your fellow officers that are hiding in the wings are going to get there in time before anything really sort of drastic happens. Um, so, yeah, but it. I used to love it. I used to love doing it. You hope to God it. they haven't gone to buy a kebab somewhere yeah. or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Or a cup of tea. I always remember sitting in an OP and it's in, in June and we're watching. It's when XR3s were the the flavour of the month and we were sitting in this garage brand new XR3s and this guy climbs over the wall and he gets out this jack and he's jacking these cars up and he's taking the wheels off and the people that are supposed to be helping me have gone off and it's a red hot night and we're just sitting there in a pair of shorts it was that hot and they'd gone off to buy ice creams yeah I've, as, as luck would have it, we finally caught this guy. They put a dog out and they caught him. But you just think, oh, you just hope that your mates aren't going to let you yeah. down. But anyway, so you've you've done your decoy, yeah. And what happens next in your in your police? So service? I join. Um, I apply to join the Serious Organised Crime Unit, and I'm successful. So I started there as a PC in two thousand and. Two, I believe it okay. was. Um, and obviously that's your next level up. So, you know, that's now cross-border policing um, because you're looking at criminals not just within Hampshire but cross-border criminals. Yeah. 
And uh, so I started that and then I did my CID application at the time. Because I think what put me off initially was the exam. I'm not very academic in that sense. And we had to do a CID exam and that put me off. So I delayed it a bit. And then I thought, come on, Kirsty, just, just, you know, head down, backside up, get on with it. You can do this. I can do this. And I did. I revised solidly for three months and I just got the pass mark because I just not, I could, I don't, I'm a practical person. I can't read and Anything just. Anything more than a pass is wasted effort. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a pass is a pass. And so I did my my path to see, to becoming an accredited detective. Yeah. But obviously at that time I'd done quite a few years already. So what the- sort of stuff did you deal with on the serious and organised oh, crime All team? sorts, mainly drugs, um, to, be, to be fair, but there was plant, heavy plant uh, machinery, theft, um, jobs, uh, drugs, uh, Ironically, I had a target at the time who we couldn't surveil where he lived. You just blew out straight away. Um, So I thought, you know, this guy's come out of, you know, prison. He's got few houses. He's never worked, obviously, all through drugs. Um, But we can never prove it. So I thought I'm just going to have a little look into his finances and so looked into how he purchased his first house established he'd lied so straight away it's dirty money because he's obtained that fraudulently um and from that he's then used the equity from that first property and bought three others but of course once one penny's tainted it's all tainted under the proceeds of crime fantastic bit of legislation love it um and got him for uh mortgage fraud um, he went on the run after conviction. So I got some intel. He was up in Liverpool. We went up there and I caught him with drugs as well. So Bonus. in the end, it, it all worked out well. So, yeah, there's, you know, lots of various different things we would do. But it's interesting because for, from what you're describing there, it's the, if you go back in history, Al Capone, wasn't, he was never convicted of being a gangster. He was convicted for defrauding the, the tax man. Yeah. So that approach around, around crime, and, and this is very controversial, and I know that some people listening to this don't agree, but the drugs world and the drug cartel is still prevalent and even if they legalized it tomorrow there will still be people that would run a clandestine market in this country because they would undermine the position of the government they would yeah. sell it cheaper yeah. than than the government they'd sell it without tax they'd still be importing it from that's exactly it they wouldn't pay the taxes they wouldn't make it a legitimate no. business because they get greedy yeah and that's what, as soon as they're making all this money, they just get greedy. Yep. And they were look at me in my flash, you know, Ferrari or whatever yep. it is they might have. Look at my big house. Yeah. And I've never done a legitimate day's work to earn it. No. And they shouldn't have it. No, they so shouldn't. And that's... Yeah, absolutely. The legislation is spot on. When it comes oh. to the proceeds of crime, it is absolutely spot on. The fact that they can go back so far and, and, and rip the money out yep. of these criminals' hands. And the fact that if they don't pay it like this chap didn't, you know, that debt is there for life. Extra time, yeah. And he got two more years because he didn't pay it by the certain time. He got two years bang like that. And if he's ever seen driven or driving around in a big flash car, you know, or even, you know, sadly, if he was to die, the will, it, that 
you know, the proceed debt. They'll grab it. Grab it before the will, you know. So yep. it, it really is a powerful piece of legislation yeah, it if is. it's used correctly. Yeah, and hopefully it'll get used some more. More, yeah. So we're now on the serious and organised crime. We've done our exams. We've passed that with flying colours, you know, top student. And <laughs> you're that. now going on into a CID office. Where did you go into the I, CID? I went to Gosport in Hampshire. So Another busy place. Yes, yeah. Full of Matlows. Full of Matlows, <laughs> yes. Not so much now, but back then, yeah. yes. Yeah, so I did, um, I did CID at um, Gosport. Um, I did it. I, I think I did about six months because I thought, you know, it's all well and good being on the SOCU, but I wasn't doing your bread and butter detective work. Yeah. And to be across the board good detective, you can't just specialise. You have to do your, your bread and butter stuff. And I've always said when I was when I tutored other, you know, uniformed officers and, um, you know, detectives, trainee detectives, you know, they all want the sexy stuff. And I said, policing is about 5% sexy. So to get that sexy, you have to do 95% of your bread and butter. Yeah. You know, your mundane. Absolutely boring, rubbish, really. But it's not rubbish because no. you're solving crime, you're helping victims and all that sort of thing. But it's the everyday stuff. If, if only senior management in the police service now would understand that, because I think a lot of this is passed them by and I don't want to be critical of the modern police service but to discount so many crimes because basically they can't be bothered to investigate them the fact is that community policing is policing in the community mm. that's where everything starts even even the crimes online start in a community yeah. and the fact that they no longer investigate certain crimes leaves me cold because that's where we learn our craft. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with you there, Paul, because when I did my CID course, it was very shortly after they'd stopped doing them nationally. No, we used to go to a different police force. Ten weeks in Birmingham yeah, for me. And I bet you had some fun. <laughs> Not I, at all. I did I did my course in Hampshire. Um and I decided to stay residential, you know, at the time because I think again you immerse in that Yep. You know, um, you're there, you're studying, you're, you know, you're with your colleagues yep. and you're having a bit of fun as well, you yep. know, on your downtime. But I was in the bar one night and I went outside, I smoked then, I went outside for a cigarette and there was this probationer outside and we got chatting. I said, oh, where are you based? She said, oh, Waterlooville. I said, all right. She said, I'm not going to stay there forever. I said, oh, why is that then? She said, well, they expect me to do house to house on on a crappy criminal damage investigation. And I went... Really? I said, how do you expect to be a police officer if you don't actually speak to the community? How do you expect to investigate or solve anything if you don't go and talk to people? And I could not believe that this was the calibre. I thought, that's what about being a police officer is. It's talking to people. Yeah, absolutely right. It's finding out what's going on in your community. That's how we get our intelligence. That's how we get people to support us. You know, and it just flabbergasted, and you know, like you say, you should. I don't mean to be cruel, but it just was very different. I was very shocked. I didn't expect yeah. to have a probationer have an attitude like that. Well, I mean, we've we've worked together, so you know my yeah. my, my views. I'm a little bit old fashioned when it comes to that. Um, how long were you there? How long before? Because you you made the move to Australia, didn't you? I so- did. Yeah. So in two thousand and six. 
I just thought, you know, I just needed a different challenge. And meeting probation like that, I just, I just felt that we were going wrong. But police forces in this, or police services, I know now. I don't know. I just, I just didn't feel that we were very victim focused. Okay. And I just thought I need to uh, to move. I need to move on. Um, you know, I think sometimes you can get a bit stagnant if you stay in one area. Yeah. So Western Australia police were advertising. Um, and I thought, you know what? That would be a challenge. Never been to Australia ever. Loved it because I love the sun. And I thought, do you know what? This is a calling. I need to, I've got to apply. If I apply and I get it, it's meant to be. And that's what I did. You applied and you got it. And I got it. And I moved over there in 2008. And where did you go to in Western Australia? I went to Perth. So I was based in Perth. did the training there. My first station was Mirabuka, which is a little, um, you know, town. And how did that compare then? So you've gone from... Southampton, which is a large city, uh, Gosport, still part of the same area. You know, it's, it's just, if you look at that part of the coast in the UK, it's just the spread of towns and yes, cities, isn't yes, it? They yeah. all merge into each other. What was that like going to Western Australia? Because Perth is the most isolated city in the world. Yeah. How was that for you? Um, it was difficult to start with because I met my husband four months before I left. So right. I had that pull of on the heartstrings, yeah. um, you know, but obviously we're early into a relationship. I still went, but um, it was very, because uh, I joined, I was joining with, you know, 20 odd other English police oh, officers. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I think there was one Australian officer who was rejoining. The rest of my intake were all British um, from across, you know, Scotland, wow. Wales um, and England. So, yeah, so you become a little community, but it was just a different lifestyle. You know, the, the, the policing, uh, you know, the wording is very similar. The crime, you know, the law, the legislation is all very, they might call it home invasion. It's a burglary, you know, yeah. things like that. But yeah. essentially, however, they didn't have pace, but they had just introduced very recently a form of pace. So pace for those people that are listening PACE was introduced in 1984 and it was to balance up the treatment of prisoners and the way that interviews were carried out because in the preceding years people would get arrested. You'll hear from um, commentators, contributors in the next few weeks how they dealt with prisoners in a completely different way. There was no recorded interviews. They'd lock them up for a few days and then they'd go back to them. So this was like that, that in Australia yeah, when you first yeah, got you, there. You would, they, we, in England, we, you know, arrest them, we interview them, we, you know, we've got 24 hours to deal with them or longer, depending. Yeah. If, um, but there they didn't, they pretty much arrested them and charged. So they didn't really arrest them until they had enough evidence to actually charge oh, okay. them. So, yeah, so they didn't really interview you know, you're sort of everyday volume stuff. Um, obviously, more serious crime, murder squads and stuff, you would. Um, so, yeah. Oh, before I went to Australia, I went on to major crime in Hampshire. So I did a stint on there okay. before. And but what did they deal with there? I mean, in in Hampshire, they were rapes and murders only. Okay. That's all they would do. Or stranger rapes, not yeah. not known victims. No, no, yeah, known yeah, familiar. Yeah, yeah, it was strangers only. Stranger rape and murders. Um, but, yeah, so... 
So Australia were just introducing this new bit of legislation where they had a similar to, to pay. So the, the force was sort of learning all about that. And, um, yeah, so I did that. But they were also wanting to bring in the tier one, tier two investigative interviewing, which we do in England under yeah. the PIP. <clears throat> and I was already tier two trained being a detective from England. So I applied and I became a CID trainer and wrote the, helped write the tier one and tier two investigative interview training that was then I delivered to across the whole force. And that whole force covers about 3,000 kilometres, doesn't it? it The the length of the coast is huge. You can fly quicker to, you know, to Bali, Yeah. 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 And it, it get into the other side of Australia. I mean, yeah. perfect. I think in the Western Australia, the UK can fit twelve times just it in is the beautiful. WA. I worked out there on a on a rape inquiry, and it is absolutely stunning, Perth. Mm. But it is a long way. Yeah, very long way. You're there as a, as a, a crime trainer, and at some point, you decide that you're going to come back to the UK. Yeah, that was my daughter. Yeah, I fell pregnant. For my now husband, who I met before we emigrate, I emigrated. We did the whole long distance thing. I fell pregnant, and um, you kind of really do need to live on the same same side as the world as each other when you have a baby. <laughs> I, think, I think so. There's a clue there, isn't <laughs> yeah. there? So I, um, at that time in Australia, you could have up to four years unpaid maternity. Right. That was their, you know. Their pay and that is very different to England mm. and and their conditions. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I'll take a year. I'll come back, rent my house out because I built my big four bedroom detached you house. Got a property, you, you- yeah, I had built my own house out there, which again you do a lot in Australia. They do house builds. Yeah. So um, and I thought I'll rent that out, come home, and we initially were my husband now husband was going to sell his business and come back out with me. You know, we were going to return to Australia together as a family. But circumstances changed. My father died and and it just never... You never returned? No, I never returned. Do you you miss Australia? Yeah, massively. Yeah, I do. Yeah. It is still the land of opportunity. Our our son lives there and... I, you know, I do like I like Australia. I like Australians. I think it's a, it's a great place, and they're very chilled people. Oh, it's the lifestyle. You know, every night, you know, at four, you know, when we finish training on a Friday, down tools, a Beer tinny, out the fridge. absolutely. Yeah, you know, you have that team. You know, one beer. In in the CID office or or the you know have a tinny and then you know I'd go home get my bodyboard go down the beach that was less than a kilometre yeah. away and and spend early evenings sort of bodyboarding in the they've still got the that sea. camaraderie out there I think yeah. Talk, talking to my mates and I think that we've we've lost some of that the sociability side within the British police service has gone yeah. And I get it because there were some people that broke the rules and they ruined it for everybody else. Yeah. But you need to play hard on, you know, to work hard, you need to be able to play hard together. And if you if you do that, you trust the people around you and you know what makes everybody tick. Yeah. And I don't think that there is that element now. I don't think they know what makes each other tick. But anyway, that's that's another story. Mm. So you, you come back to the UK. You settled in Essex? Yes. I mean, Essex and Essex and Hampshire, demographically, they're very similar. Yeah. You know, they've got big towns. They've got we've got the military here, and so on and so forth. 
at what point did you apply to join Essex Police? Um, it was after about, I think it was about a year, uh, I realised I wasn't going to be getting back. And, and being a new mum, I didn't know anyone in Essex. Never been here. You know, I think I'd taken a prisoner to Colchester Army Barracks, you know, collected a prisoner from there. That's about the extent of me ever coming to Essex. So I kind of felt a little bit icy. I thought I just need adult conversation mm. again. And so, and it was ironic because I was on a five-year career break from Hampshire. I was on maternity from Western <laughs> Australia Police and Essex Police offered me a position. So at one point I had three police forces that I could have, um, could have gone to. Could have gone to. But obviously family came first. So I um, ended my career back, did it effectively a transfer from Hampshire. And right, I just okay. resigned. Yeah, so they they transferred my Hampshire service to Essex and I just resigned from Australia, please. And where did you go to when you came here? Initially, I went to Basildon because it was that reform number one. Did you meet my brother? Did you? Were you interviewed by my brother when you came to the... My brother was uh, a chief superintendent when he retired, but he was a superintendent on CID. Did you come in and... Because I remember the transferees used to have to come in and meet him. Yes, I did meet your brother. Yeah, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. He was very nice. <laughs> he was nice. But, um, yeah, so I started at Basildon. Um, and in the October of 2012, because the process got delayed because of the Olympics and stuff. And then, yeah, um, reform number two happened again very quickly and I transferred to Harlow, Harlow. which was better. I, I didn't, uh, wasn't a lover of Basildon, I must admit. Harlow's a great place. Harlow is 11 square miles with, I think, 80,000 people living it that we know of and it's a... It's a metropolitan area, very, very diverse, underrepresented by police. There aren't enough police officers there. But it's a, it's a great place to work, and, and that is a classic example where the teams work hard together and some of them play hard as yeah. well. Yeah, and it was probably, uh, in all fairness, you know, really good five years um, I had at Harlow. I had a good DS. I had a good DI. I had a great DI. A when, great DI great. called Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, we had not some some not so good DIs along the way, but um, yeah. you know, on the on the whole, Harlow. I did enjoy my time at Harlow. Yeah, um, no, at CID. And you you worked on some really interesting cases there as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did, and and obviously it was a tutor as well. So you know, I used to all the sort of probationers would come through on their attachments and, and obviously trainee detectives as well. But, yeah, I had, um, yeah, quite a few. The pub burglar, was it the pub burglar yeah, that you the, had? Who, yeah. Who the, was that? The, <laughs> that was, um, I went to one burglary on a late turn, my last late turn. Um, pub See, in, I remember, I remember. Yeah. And it was, the memory man. that's probably one of my best investigations, I would say, you know, in my career in terms of, how quickly it evolved and but yeah I basically went to one burglary the CCTV was spot on yeah and uh, I thought this won't be long before um and the victim's daughter had put it out on Facebook media two other pubs that night in Harlow said we caught them in our dwelling part above the pub yeah so I sent I was acting DS at the time as well so I sent um uh, another DC to go and just take reports for it. Anyway, that was it. Late turn, handed over, went went home on my three rest days and I heard a press release about a job in Southend, pub, dwelling burglary, and I thought, 
that sounds just like my job. So on my first day back, I came in and um, phoned the IC and said, have you got any CCTV? And he went, yeah, but it's really rubbish. I said, don't worry, send it over because mine's really good. And it was the same, same so, uh, suspects. So suspects. So if, if I explain, and if I get this wrong, you'll, you'll correct me, but... The MO, modus operandi, the suspect would go into the living accommodation of the landlord whilst they were busy working behind the bar. Yeah. He'd go in through into the into the private dwelling areas and then he'd go up, steal money, jewellery, whatever. Yeah, easy stuff that they could, you know, transport, transport out. out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not identifiable. How do as such. I remember that one? Because it was at the time. No, how know. do I remember yeah, I know how I know. you remember yeah. it, but I think of all the hundreds of cases, cases. that I saw yeah. over that time. Um yeah, no. So, what was the name of the suspects on that? Do you um, remember? Warren and Wesley Linen. <laughs> they Warren were the, Wesley Linen. Yeah, they were brothers. And, and they, they got ju- locked they, up. Yeah, they'd only just been out of prison for six weeks and they went on this massive spree across eight police forces. And I, I'd made the link in Essex. Then I put it out. I thought, they're not just committing here. They're, so, I put a little thing out to forces and then that was it. I was just inundated job after job. So I just said, well, look, I'll, like this, this is crazy. One person needs to manage this. Mm. And stupidly, I put my head above well, the parapet and went, I'll do it. You may say stupidly, but no, unless but- people do that, then these things get lost and yeah. there will be 15 OICs and they haven't joined up all the dots. And the OIC is the officer in the case. They they don't do, join all the dots up. They don't do the, the legwork. And then all of a sudden, we've got 15 victims who haven't been satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, you, you did the yeah. right thing. And, I I mean, I detected 60. I could, I could categorically put 60 to them through CCTV, sales analysis on their phones, all things like that. But I... I, I think they probably did three or four times that. Yeah. So in when, that period. did you did you interview them? Unfortunately, I didn't. I happened to go on leave at the time. <laughs> How's they your luck? Were, I know. I did all the legwork. <laughs> um, you know, with colleagues, their colleagues helped me as well. But yeah, no. When um, I was actually not on work or at work when they were, the Met helped us. The Metropolitan helped us, um, and we got them. But. All the interview prep had already been done oh. anyway, so it was all ready for them to just be arrested. And do you know if they made any comment or did, you, did we have to prove no everything? No comment, no. And then they went no comment and then at court they pleaded guilty at first hearing. Yeah. Yeah. And they so, got credit for that probably because... Yeah, they got five and a half years each. Did they? Yeah. Oh, good. So, yeah, Not five and a half you. years. It's so always nice. I was proud of it because, you know, yeah. to... to to just make that link and then say, look, you know, we someone needs to manage this. How, how do you think, when you go back to a victim, when we went back to victims, how do you think the victims took that sort of news? They were really, really chuffed. And it was funny because that BBC got hold of that job and asked me to go on the Court Red-Handed programme, which I did. I featured right. it on there. And the first victim, the only, the only burglary I actually attended where I got that CCTV, he said, DC Swan, I love her. I love <laughs> that's her. that's how he ended his interview with the BBC because we never got his money back, but he knows we caught those people in a relative – because realistically the statistics of catching burglars oh. is, you know, and to catch a burglar and actually categorically charge them with 60 – Six zero is like 
it's not unheard of. Yeah. And we look at the the stats that came out the past couple of weeks around the amount of people arrested and convicted and charged and go to court, and it's quite dire at the moment. Yeah. I, I hope. I hope that Mark Rowley and BJ Harrington, all the senior officers in in the country, they start to get hold of this and, and make sure that their their staff are going out because they they've politicised the police service. Mm. I mean, I think as well what started my journey of really getting a bit disheartened as well was when we stopped as detectives going to dwelling burglaries yeah. only if there was um, a witness. Well, how are you ever going to solve crime as it goes back to that you need and and burglary is an invasion of your privacy yeah. and you need to know that the force that the detectives are invested. In. Realistic, we wouldn't detect most of them, but that reassurance that we were actually trying to do something, and we were. All good detectives and all good police officers are really genuinely yeah. doing everything they can to catch these baddies, you know, and, you know, without facing the public and talking to them and saying, look, we will do, we might not, but trust me, we will do what do we can. Bit. And victims need that. Yeah, they, and they deserve it as yeah. well. It's, it's interesting because one, one of the key phrases that I used to use is that a suspect very rarely gave themselves up, up to a CID office. And I also used to say, if you're not going to use your warrant card to arrest somebody, give it back and we'll get somebody else who will. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it. you have to, you've got to get out there, ruffling the waters, digging through the leaves, yeah. if you are going to actually... Make a difference. Yeah. Oh, I agree. So, you've done your time at Harlow and you decide to go on to major crime in yeah. Essex. Yeah. Regrets? Yeah. Yeah, sadly. Don't like to say it, but yeah. I didn't think it would be. And, you know, it is quite... Um, disappointing that you know um, it, it's a bit of a two way thing because I regret going there but I don't because of what I've moved on to do now yes so I was only on there for a short period of time um, and I did you know enjoy it. my colleagues were great it was just one person sadly spoiled it for me senior management yeah. who, who effectively bullied you out of the organisation yeah just treated me really badly and then denied it um, but then was witnessed and it just all got really silly. And, um, you know, I tried to deal with it myself and confront it and the deny was there and I just thought, you know what, I'm peeing in the wind. Yeah. So I decided to remove myself and resign. The decision was taken from me. Other colleagues that this is not on, took it further and in the end, Essex Police granted the superintendent and my DCI were brilliant and they tried to keep me and say, look, you know, we can work through this. And I just thought, you know, they said, you know, would you like a career break? And I did. And I thought that's really nice. And I thought, okay, we'll we'll try that. Maybe that might work because I knew I couldn't work for that officer again. And I wouldn't. I had no respect for them and it wasn't fair on them or me to, to remain in that situation. Um, so, you know, I decided to, okay, well, look, do a career break, but HR wouldn't do a career break, but the superintendent convinced them, said, look, I'll wear the wear vacancy for six months, you know, and they said, okay, then we'll do that. But six months, I thought, what realistically is going to change mm-hmm. in six months? 
and my mental health, my emotions, I just couldn't. I was dreading going into work and you shouldn't feel that. No, you like shouldn't that. feel that. And there's an irony, isn't there, because that person, and we're not going to name, but they went on to um, become self-professed experts in certain areas. Yeah. And, and Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of almost now would buy the person a beer because if they hadn't have treated me like that, I wouldn't be where I am now no. doing what I do. But it's still, it's bittersweet of almost. Of course, of course. You know. So let's talk about that because I know that before you left the police service, you were already studying in this area, weren't you? Yes, so yeah. I sound like, um, what was that? That 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 program stars in your eyes tonight, Matthew. I'm, yeah. So so what what were you studying? Just let the cat out of the bag. What were you studying whilst you were at, at Harlow? What were what were you doing? To I was learning British Sign Language. British Sign Language. Yes. BSL. BSL. Yeah. Okay, and we were in awe of you because most of us couldn't speak English properly, and there you are learning <laughs> a, a completely different language. Yes, so it is a completely different language. How have you used your skills since? leaving the police service so um i did level one level two and level three um while i was in police because oh. i thought it would give you another language i could help any of the deaf community that we were policing yep. you know to you know or even a suspect or a, a victim just re- i couldn't formally interpret but i could talk to them and, and explain and calm any situation down so they knew what was going on. Did you get any support by the police? The police wouldn't financially support me at all. I paid, financed it myself. The only thing that they would guarantee was that they would allow me to alter my shifts on my college night so I could attend the course. Okay. So I couldn't. I could either take it as leave or I could just, just do an earlier shift. But, but given how the police service embraced diversity in other areas... Mm. You would have thought they would have said, "Do you know what? We'll help you with this yeah. because this is absolutely brilliant." I I couldn't tell you of anybody else in Essex that can. I'm sure there are, yeah. But it's a, it's a skill, and we all know that we could have suspects and victims that come in. Yeah. A, a, a moment's notice, you could get a phone call. Can you come and yeah. help us because we've got to do this? Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, no, they didn't. They just allowed me the the altar of the shift. Okay. Yeah. So. How does it progress from there? So you've done so, your, you've done your, your sign language. Yeah, so I've done doing my sign language, and my best friend, um, she uh, is what we call a lip speaker. So she's an interpreter, BSL interpreter, but she's also what we call a lip speaker. And what does that mean then? So a lip speaker is a person who's professionally trained to be easy to lip read. So not all deaf people, and this is a massive miss conception that people have is that if you're deaf you sign and actually a lot of people don't sign a lot of them are brought up what we call oral so they have maybe hearing parents and they lip read them but not everybody is lip readable people don't articulate people mumble people turn away you know because they haven't got that deaf awareness so a lip speaker is someone professionally trained to be lip readable we cut out redundant language in the English language, we love to put in a then and a that and a, and you don't need it. So we remove redundant language and make it lip readable. You can only lip read realistically about 100, 110 words a minute. Um, some people talk at about 170 words a minute. So we, you know, uh, learn how to 
remove those languages, and but we repeat the tone and the intonation, everything from of the speaker as well. And um, yeah, so that a deaf person watches us, not the speaker. I wish I had a camera on us now because you're signing as you're, as you're automatically <laughs> signing as you're explaining to me. Yeah. And there is an irony that this is audio and we are going to get subtitles put onto this uh, for the people that you work with because yes. I think it's important. They they know your background and, and, and where you've come from and how you've got to where you are. Yeah. You've done your course. I assume there are courses involved. Yeah, so um, that was the other catalyst about leaving the police as well because I asked them if I could do the lip speaking course because it was two days a month, a Saturday, Friday and a Saturday for 18 months, but they wouldn't guarantee me a Friday and a Saturday off. So, you know, things happen for, I'm a great believer things happen for a yeah, reason. So that happened. And I, so I left Essex Police and joined Braintree District Council as housing of, options officer. So dealing with homelessness. And that allowed me the time to sign up and do the course. Fantastic. It was 18 month course. And um, yeah. So what does that mean now? Because you've got your own company, haven't you? Yes. And what's your company called? East Coast Lip Speaking. East Coast Lip Speaking. And you, if you use all the Ws and you use the word East Coast Lip Speaking, you will find Kirsty's company and they're credible. In fact, they're incredible, the stuff that they do. What does that mean for you now, though? So for me now, I, um, I'm i self-employed. As I say I've got East Coast Lip Speaking is my web page um, where I, you know, provide my services. I have demonstration videos on there that show what lip speaking do, uh, lip speakers do, should I say. So, yeah, so you can have pure lip speaking where a deaf person who doesn't sign just lip reads me or they do some sign. So I can do lip speaking without sign or lip speaking and add the sign. And then that allows me to go and work for any area I want to, any person. So if there's a deaf person working, they have access to work budget. They pay to have communication support if they prefer to lip read. And then so I've, I work in health care. I support a health visitor. I support um, a lady that works for Deaf Blind UK. <clears throat> Excuse me, I... I'm in court. I'm, I'm lip speaking in court. Um, a defendant is deaf, so I'm there to support a defendant who's deaf. So I work in all sorts of domains, and that's where it takes me. So any deaf person who needs communication support by way of lip reading would ask a lip speaker to give that support. That's, that's fantastic. And you've said that you know you've covered courts and and what have you, but. You must get people out of a real jam. You know, they get into such a – and I think communication is the greatest skill that we as police officers have, mm -hmm. both written and, and oral communication. And to be able to use that in your business in such a, a professional way is absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. So what's your – if you had a, a target market, a wish list of people that would like to listen to this – what areas of, of industry in the community would you like to reach out to? Any. Because we I can support any deaf person in any domain. So, I mean, obviously, if it's um, scientific, I mean, lip, 
as long as I can say the word, (laughs) then I can support them. You know, I mean, obviously science, you get some really random acronyms and, and, and difficult words, but if I can say the word, I can support them in whatever domain, you know, and a lot of deaf people who lip read just get on with it because they never, they don't realize what support is out there for them. So what I would say is to anybody who's listening, who has a deaf employee, a deaf family member who's struggling at work. I did an interview the other day and a lady was, it was a PIP assessment. And she said, I really struggle at work in meetings because people don't talk once one at a time. So she'd never had communication support. What's a PIP assessment? So personal independence payment. Right, so okay. I, I do um, communication support for people who are being assessed for PIPs. That's another area yeah. that we do. And while the, she was being asked about, you know, her, her, her deafness, how it affects her daily living, she was explaining about being at work, in meetings every day. And although her colleagues know she's deaf they forget a lot and they just carry on talking and she's excluded from so much because of that whereas if myself or another lip speaker this lady didn't sign she lip reads was in there she could say who's talking what they're saying that's our job we relay all of the information that is in a room so that that person has full access to it and you're absolutely right about the exclusionary element because if there was any other form of diversity and they were being excluded in the same way there would be outcry absolutely but because somebody's deaf it's almost oh well they're deaf and and they're almost excluded immediately without any anything else and you know people do it without realizing it you know someone's deaf and they ask a question and they say Sorry, I didn't hear you. I'm deaf. They go, oh, don't worry about it. That is the worst thing, awful thing that you can say to any deaf person. If you felt it was enough to say it, then you should be telling them what it is. Yeah, absolutely. They are so good at adapting to lip reading. They might not get it all. Even an expert lip reader will only get about 70% of what is said. Right. And it's very important if you're communicating with a deaf person, let them know what you want to talk to f- about first. So don't just tap them off the shoulder and say, blah, blah, blah. Just tap them and say, I want to talk to you about, you know, your paperwork because then they'll start to look for words related to paperwork on your mouth because we all know you can get mixed up people do the whole colorful don't they i love you or colorful looks exactly the same when you switch the voice off right so things like that but they'll be able to piece it together like a jigsaw we were watching the one show and the Rose was on there. Rose Ailing. Fantastic. What what a person. And it took her a while to catch up with what the conversation was about. <laughs> but it's marvellous that she's able to work within the theatrical world successfully. Yes. Because 20 years ago, she wouldn't have. No. no. We, we spoke earlier on about the differences between sign and lip speaking and how they abbreviate the conversation. Could you explain that for me? Yeah, so, well, BSL is a completely language in its own right. So in English, we say, hello, my name's Kirsty. In BSL, they'll say, name me. 
so and you're signing what's your you're explaining yeah, I'm, I'm no, signing, no it's fine but but, but obviously yeah. so, so it's yeah. so someone who is full bsl their first language is bsl okay it's not english okay someone who is who lip reads their first language is usually english or okay. it would be english yeah so that's the difference so you have a bsl interpreter or you have a lip speaker so it depends what the deaf person's first language is. Okay. Some can switch between the two. They've been brought up oral, but then have gone on to use BSL every day. Then they can switch between the two, but they normally have a preference of. Yeah, it's fascinating. Sign language, and, and deafness is is very personal. So what one deaf person wants in communication another one won't want the same it's a very personal you'll have cochlears you'll have hearing aids some will have nothing have no sound i mean cochlear implants and hearing aids don't fix hearing they give you some hearing back and that's where the misconception is as well is that oh she's got hearing aids so she should be able to hear but it won't be at different ranges different tones and hearing aids give them every bit of noise. Yeah. You know, we can shut out background noise. Hearing aid can't do that. They've got to live so with it. They, they have everything <laughs> that's going on. All or so, nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. And how how do you, how do you think, bear in mind this is relatively new, how long has uh, this, well, uh, have, have there been lip speakers? A long time, to over 20 years. Right, But okay. it's just never really been advertised as yeah. much, you know. I mean, it's coming more and more. I mean, I'm a self-employed lip speaker and I get bookings pretty much every day. Yeah. So we are spreading the word out there and the deaf community are spreading the word, especially the lip-reading ones, um, you know, who are deaf and, and want that support. But... Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, well, I hope that we can raise the profile of what you do. Yeah. Um, certainly from your business perspective as Thank well, you. try and give you some more support from there. Before we stop, is there anything... This is a, this is a place. Is there anything you'd like to add alter or clarify or you'd like to say before we can, <laughs> before we conclude this interview? I'm not going to say the time or the date, but is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, um, just want to add that um, I am a police-approved interpreter and translator. Um, There's only actually, I believe, two lip speakers in the whole of the UK that have got that accreditation. That is now a requirement um, for any interpreters. That's fantastic. In the police domain to have that accreditation. And how often have you been used by the British Police Service? I haven't as yet, although I have been contacted, but they needed an BSL interpreter. But again, I put them onto yeah. to someone that could help with that. That's so, interesting because I wonder what, what they're actually doing in order to deal with uh, victims and, and the like who are deaf. Bear in mind, if there's only two of you, the law of averages says that you should be getting called in to deal with these individuals. Yeah, it's if they – I mean, there's two lip speakers. There might be more BSL interpreters, but two lip speakers accredited in the UK at the moment. Um, And along with that comes government clearance as well. So, um, you know, I've been vetted for all of that. Um, And I would love to collaborate more with Essex Police to try and 
raise their deaf awareness and try and improve their service to the deaf community because I think that's important and I've got the accreditation to do that. Um, Or maybe we need to speak to Vernal Scott who runs the inclusion department at Essex Police. I do follow him on Twitter and I will make sure that uh, I get him tagged in this and that he's made aware of the things that you do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, anything to do with the deaf community will be able to help and even for the police force, providing them some deaf awareness training because they will at some point come across a deaf person within the community that's a victim or a suspect. And I've seen that where a a deaf person has been a suspect and to try and communicate with a deaf person who doesn't understand what's going on, they could have a gun, a taser, they could have somebody who's got a baton and they're trying to arrest them for a crime. Mm -hmm. Their frustration then comes out and they become non-compliant let's yes. say because they don't understand they, and and the police then react to that in an adverse way yeah. often i was used only once when i was at harlow and that was i think at loughton they were going to arrest someone they knew were deaf and they knew that i did some sign now i wasn't an interpreter i just literally used my basic sign skills to explain yep. that they were being arrested it was all fine and you know took them to custody and then at at custody they then got a BSL Mm. interpreter but it calmed the whole situation down just to have that you know basic right I'm not an interpreter but I can explain in your language because you've got to forget it's not we they shouldn't have to adapt to us no we adapt to them yeah you get an interpreter or a lip speaker so that you can communicate with them because you're not lip readable or you don't sign you know it's not they should have to put up with it or get on with it no. or just adapt you know interpreters and lip speakers are there because whoever wants to speak to them can't no of in course. their language we do it in foreign languages why do we not do it as we should with deaf community it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and i'm grateful for your time today i I know how busy you are but is there anything you'd like to put in there no i'm just thank you for inviting me and and you know it was nice to be able to talk about you know the older times and and you know really my career journey um i appreciate it but really i think just for anyone who may have a friend who's deaf or a colleague who's deaf you know take a look at my website www.eastcoastlipspeaking.co.uk take a little look have a little demonstration look at the videos um, and see if it's something that can help them because whatever your preferred communication requirement is as a deaf person if I can't help you I will find someone that can I work very closely with Lipspeaking UK who's my best friend Leslie you know, we collaborate. She's the one that influenced me to to become a lip speaker. Um, her friends, you know, said I was easy to lip read. Um, and, you know, between the two of us, we will get you that support. We'll help with access to work applications, disabled student allowances. There's so much funding out there that people aren't always aware of or are frightened to apply for. Okay. Just email me through my website and I'll help. If I can't help, I'll damn sure find someone who can. Kirsty, you're an absolute star. Thank you so much for your time today. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you soon. Lovely. Thank you for having me, Paul.
Thank <laughs> you.